You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. My message is this. If you're trying to leave Cuba, Nicaragua, or Haiti, you have, and we, or have agreed to begin a journey to America, do not, do not just show up at the border. Stay where you are and apply legally from there. Starting today, if you don't apply through the legal process, you will not be eligible for this new parole program. Before his trip to Mexico, President Biden announced a series of new measures that he says will curb the influx of migrants at the southern border. There will be new requirements for those seeking asylum. One measure will expand a parole program to migrants seeking asylum from nations like Haiti, Nicaragua and Cuba. The process requires migrants to be sponsored while also going through a vetting and background check process. Another plan is to impose a new regulation, a version of the Trump-era policy, often called the transit ban. Joining me is immigration law expert Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Let me start with Biden's visit to Mexico. What is he hoping to accomplish? What can he accomplish Well, the key thing for President Biden to accomplish in Mexico is to get Mexico's blessing to accept as many people as possible that the United States wants to exclude from the four countries, which are Nicaragua, Cuba, Venezuela, and Haiti under Title 42, given that there's this new carrot and sticks approach where individuals from those countries are going to be asked to apply for a legal entrance into the United States such that if they try to enter illegally, they will be pushed into Mexico. Right now, Mexico doesn't accept people who are not from the Northern Triangle or from Mexico proper. And so the idea would be for Mexico to accept these people, knowing that at the end of the rainbow or at the end of the day, them accepting them in the short term for now will be the consequence that's necessary to sort of dismiss this long-term problem because hopefully more people will use the legal pathway as opposed to the illegal pathway. Let's go back a step to that Title 42 expansion. So the Biden administration is fighting to end Title 42 in the courts, but it's expanding a policy that depends on expanding the use of Title 42 to rapidly expel asylum seekers from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Correct. There's a bit of an incongruency there in that the Biden administration is saying, look, in the long term, we would like to end Title 42, but while our hand is quote-unquote being forced, although I would argue 
they've made the litigation decisions that have forced their own hand. But nevertheless, while their hand is being quote-unquote forced, they will take advantage of Title 42 and use it to the maximum extent possible to create a consequence delivery carrots and stick system where we tell the largest group of people at the border that aren't from the Northern Triangle and Mexico, which is, again, Cubans, Haitians, Venezuelans, and Nicaraguans, people fleeing from political oppression, that those individuals need to enter through the legal parole pathways that are being created and not enter illegally in between the ports of entry because all that's going to do is lead to you being excluded under Title 42 when you had this perfectly legal pathway to enter in. The program has been in effect for Venezuelans, and that's been working? Well, the first group that got this program under the Biden administration were Ukrainians. So Ukrainians actually were appearing thousands and thousands of Ukrainians on the southern border after Russia attacked Ukraine. And they were trying to get in through the southern border, same way as everybody else. And the Biden administration said, this is untenable. We can't do this. Let's create a program that allows Ukrainians to enter legally, to be paroled into the United States. And hopefully they'll stop using the illegal pathway of the border. And lo and behold, that's what happened. You don't see any Ukrainians on the southern border now. They enter through the legal pathway. So then the Biden administration said, well, let's see what happens if we extend this to a few thousand, 20-something thousand Venezuelan individuals. Will this work? And you've seen Venezuelans use this pathway. So now the idea is, well, maybe for 30,000 people a month, we can create new pathways for Cubans, Venezuelans, Haitians, and Nicaraguans. Now, is that going to be enough? No, that's not going to be anywhere near enough. But, I mean, it is still, you know, amateur mathematics here, 360,000 people a year that will be paroled into the country. And I don't know how much more reasonable it is to ask Biden to take more people than that. So the idea is, hey, wait, use this pathway. And if you use this pathway, you're going to get in legally. So don't do it illegally because all that's going to happen is Title 42. So... The Departments of Homeland Security and Justice also released a plan to impose a new regulation, and it's a version of the Trump-era policy, which was often called the transit ban, although Secretary Mayorkas denies that. It's not a facsimile or an identical copy. It is a resemblance in the sense of what it's going toward is this idea that there will no longer be an acceptance of people going in between the ports of entry on the southern border and applying for asylum. If you want to do that, you will be banned from getting asylum. And that's a serious thing, because if you can't get asylum, that means you can't get a path to citizenship. You can't apply for your spouse and your children and your family members to enter the United States once you get American citizenship down the line. And so all you'd be able to get is this thing called withholding of removal, which is basically a temporary stay on your deportation. And that's if you win your case that you're going to be persecuted abroad. Now, the difference is that if you can show that you would be persecuted in Mexico where you're waiting, you'll be able to come in. And their idea is, look, that's more compassionate than Trump, who didn't really care for that approach, which is he didn't really, he nominally did, but didn't really allow people to show that they'd be persecuted waiting in Mexico. But nevertheless, it is the same to the extent that what it's doing is it's saying, look, there's no applying for asylum 
in between the ports of entry. They're going to the ports of entry or they're applying for asylum at a country that you're passing that has a credible asylum system. And if you don't do either of those things, don't think you're going to cross the border in the United States and get asylum. And so that's getting a lot of criticism from advocates and, and some of the more liberal members of Congress. But I do think when coupled with this parole program, where if you enter legally and you get paroled, you can apply for asylum once you've entered legally, the idea is hopefully this carrots and sticks approach will channel some large amount of people through this program rather than through the in between the ports of entry on the southern border. So now, are there also plans to expand Title Eight border processing? Well, so what I think is going to happen is when Title 42 goes away, if and when, whenever that may be, what's going to happen is you're going to have a lot more people prosecuted who are single adults who are coming coming in between the ports of entry. And you're going to have a lot more people put into removal proceedings under Title 8, expedited removal proceedings, and try to really focus on getting people out as part of those expedited removal proceedings, meaning being a little tougher, not saying that they have a credible fear that allows them to wait inside the United States. But you can only do so much there. And then again, the other thing that is focused on is, okay, and this is starting now with this new CBP-1 app that they're developing, is finally they're doing what we do with visas all over the world, which is here's going to be a one app that CBP will have where you book an appointment and try to make your initial asylum showing at a port of entry. And the good news about that is CBP totally controls how many people they can see. So they'll know we're going to have a thousand people here, 500 people here, 750 people there. And it's not a surprise that you can plan your day and have the resources you need for each day, as opposed to when people come in between the ports of entry, you have no idea who's coming and how many people are coming and where they're coming. So that's the virtual platform that's going to be sort of a one-stop shop for migrants Correct. to find information? That's what CBP is trying to do, is to basically do the parole process for the 30,000 people a month, but for the, for the additional people above the 30,000, to schedule appointments for people to make their initial asylum claims at a port of entry instead of in between the port of entry. But a lot of people may not have access to the Internet. Well, this is going to be an interesting question about what the NGOs are going to be doing on the northern border. Will they be able to help people, you know, for better or for worse, these smuggling networks that do everything else for people to come up? Obviously, will they have access to the apps and will they be able to tell people, okay, in addition to whatever assistance we've given you to get you to the north part of Mexico, the southern border, here's now your app appointment. And so just know that you have an appointment on March 1st at 12.30 p.m. Okay, so now the person knows they don't really need to do much more than that other than to show up at their appointment. It's not unreasonable to think that the NGOs will be able to, to do it, but quite frankly, as sophisticated as some of these smuggling networks are, where they know on a daily basis where the CBP resources are, where the ports are, which one is the best one to go to, where, is the, where are they acting nicest toward people, et cetera, that they would be able to use an app is not so unrealistic. So there are things that the Biden administration could have done years ago. They always say we need Congress to have a comprehensive plan. We need more money. But there are things they could have done. 
Why did he wait two years to take that photo op trip, I guess it is, to the border and do this? I think there is a sort of reticence to engage on immigration because there's a calibration problem currently that exists in the Democratic Party about how liberal the Democratic Party has to be on immigration. And I think you're seeing this with the changing demographics of the Latino vote and how in some states you have many more Latinos voting for Republicans than you used to have in the past. And the idea is, I think people in the Democratic Party want compassion, but they don't want open borders writ large. I don't think that's a position that the majority of Democrats hold. And I think the Democratic leaders who thought that there was a lot more sympathy for open borders in the base than that there actually is, is maybe recalibrating that understanding a little bit and saying, look, as long as we have a compassionate policy and a fair policy, we also need a policy that doesn't permit just simply unchecked immigration through the southern border of the United States. Now, having said that, Congress does have a role to play in the long term in building worker programs. The biggest problem in my immigration practice every single day is that you have employers wanting workers and realizing and learning for the first time, oh, there's no actual way to apply for a worker who's not doing a job that requires a college degree. So if you want a plumber or you want a construction person or you want waiters for your seasonal restaurant or whatever, there's basically nothing available. There's no way to get these workers. And so if you could create a program, and that's what the 2013 immigration bill did that passed the Senate but didn't pass the House, where you would have large amounts of these visas available during time periods like this, where unemployment is low, but has very few visas available during time periods where unemployment is high, you could actually have people all go through these legal channels. You wouldn't have anybody having to claim asylum. Most people claim asylum because they have no alternative. There's no other way to do this. But people wouldn't want to claim asylum if they could just access these worker programs. You'd have people do these jobs, And when these jobs are finished, then they can return home with a lot of savings for them and their family and return whenever they want to when the times are high again. And so that's the idea of how you build these programs in those situations. But we don't have a program like that that exists. And so this is what creates all of this illegality on the southern border. So now let's move on to Ron DeSantis. First, he was flying Texas migrants to Cape Cod. Now he's going to court to make his point. Trial opened in federal court in Pensacola, where he's claiming that the Biden administration allowed thousands of migrants into the U.S. each month by ignoring policies to detain them. Is this a serious case? This lawsuit was filed in 2021, so it's not a new lawsuit. It's just that the trial is happening this week. I mean, it's a serious case to the extent that a judge has denied a motion to dismiss twice already and is saying, look, we're going to go to trial on an Administrative Procedure Act claim that the Biden administration has to be detaining people at the southern border. That It's not true what they're saying, that we don't have an alternative but to release people into the United States. Now, I think the problem is people don't realize how complicated this mosaic is. No person is treated the same as another person. And what do I mean by that? If you're under the age of 18, the law is extremely clear that you can't be detained or removed or anything else. You have to be let in the country if you appear as either an unaccompanied minor 
or even if you come as a family and the family has mom, dad, and a bunch of kids under 18, the bunch of kids under 18 cannot be detained, can't be deported or anything. They have to be let in the country and allowed to make any immigration claims that they're allowed to make. That's by statute. Then the question is, well, what do you do with family? Because the kids have to be allowed to come in. Do you separate the parents from the children? That's what the Trump administration tried. And we know what the consequences of that were. And so I don't think the court is going to order the Biden administration to separate the parents from the children. I just don't think that's going to happen. So we're back now to, again, single adults. So when the adults come alone with no children. You know, the most common thing is families and children when you add those up together, but there's still a number of people who come just as adults, not accompanied by any children. Do you have to detain all of those people? And what the record is probably going to show in these cases is most of those people currently are being detained or put in expedited removal or put through Title 42. And so if you're just talking about the few people that make it through the cracks because they have some medical issues or something else, are you really going to force the Biden administration's hand and say, no, 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 every single person you have to detain? I mean, that's where this judge is going to, I think, have a hard time crafting a decision. Because in the end, the issue with the children makes this so complicated that people don't realize that that's why most people are getting through when they enter the United States. And so what chance do you think this suit has in Florida? I think... You know, given who the judge is here and that the judge is is sort of sympathetic to these claims and has been, I do think that some version of a decision will be issued requiring the Biden administration to detain more people on the southern border than they're currently detaining. But I do think very quickly the judge either on his own account will realize the problem that's happening with families and with unaccompanied children or that sort of buzzsaw will be lead to reversal in the 11th Circuit, especially because there's a lot of dicta in the Remain in Mexico decisions that talk about the Biden administration's ability to allow people to enter in the United States, that the choices aren't just Remain in Mexico or detention, that there is a third choice and that the Biden administration has that third choice to allow people to enter into the United States and wait here while their claims are pending. So now one question on, on the Supreme Court case. Um, the, the court's going to take that, decide that case, hear the arguments in February or, or March. Is the answer in that case going to be Title 42 is legal or not legal, or is it going to be, well, the Republican states can sue or can't sue? Right. That's the problem is the only thing the court can do is at the end of the day, allow the state to intervene in the appeal of the case that's currently in the D.C. Circuit, where there is a challenge to the ability of the Biden administration to use Title 42. That's it. So what will happen is if the states are successful, the Supreme Court, all they will be doing is allowing the state to try to get a second chance at getting this decision repealed that bans the administration from using Title 42. And then at the same time, there's a case coming up through the Fifth Circuit on that. So eventually what will happen is it will end at the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court will have to decide whether the Biden administration can get rid of Title 42. And again, 
I just don't see how a Supreme Court can say that a public health determination that the Biden administration or any administration wants to get rid of based on the fact that the public health emergency is over has to be kept into place once the public health emergency is over. It does seem very strange to me, but I just don't know if the idea is just to keep this Title 42 in effect for as long as possible and that sort of everybody is in on the joke and that's all we're trying to accomplish here. Thanks so much for your insights, Leon, as always. That's immigration law expert Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. George Santos has been a member of Congress for less than a week, but the freshman Republican has already been engulfed in controversy and investigations. And now he's officially facing a congressional ethics complaint filed on Tuesday by two New York Democrats, Congressman Dan Goldman and Richie Torres. Mr. Santos's conduct, both as it relates to his outright lies about his biography, about his employment, um, about his, uh, his entire person, his being, his religion, um, all of that is, reflects on every one of us in Congress. Even more egregious than his lying is his possible law-breaking. The million-dollar question is, where did all the money come from? Santos has admitted misrepresenting significant details about his religion, education, and career, including that he graduated from college and worked for Goldman Sachs and Citigroup. But he says, I have done nothing or nothing wrong. Santos will be facing more than his colleagues. Federal and local prosecutors are already investigating him, and a complaint has been filed with the Federal Election Commission. Joining me is elections law expert Richard Brafalt, a professor at Columbia Law School. Santos has acknowledged lying to reporters about his educational and professional history, though he calls it embellishing his resume. But is there any law, rule, or regulation that makes such misstatements illegal? It just seems like it's not something that he can really be held accountable for except by voters. No, no, there's certainly no federal law prohibiting lying by a candidate during an election. Hardly any states have anything like that. There are even some questions about whether it would be constitutional to punish somebody for lying, uh, as opposed to, say, something like defamation. If he obviously lies about somebody in a way that defames them, that might be the basis of least civil action. But no, there's generally no restriction on lying other than lying on a federal form or lying through the federal government in the course of a federal inquiry. And that's really where the 
or to the extent that there's going to be a legal problem for Mr. Santos, it's going to be questions about whether he lied uh, in his financial disclosure forms and his campaign finance reporting. Federal prosecutors in the Eastern District of New York are reportedly looking into Santos's finances and how he was able to lend his campaign $700,000 when as late as 2020 he was declaring a salary of only $55,000. That's right. And in the context of his campaign, he claims to have loaned his campaign more than $700,000 in 2022. And yet, as you point out, in 2020, he basically said he had an income of $55,000 and little or no assets. So a good part of the financing of his campaign came from this loan based on the resources he claims to develop from this LLC, Devolder. But the year before, he was basically declaring very little income. So the issue that a uh, complaint has been filed with the FEC and what I imagine the prosecutors are looking into is, was this money really being funneled to him by other donors? Was he, in fact, a so-called straw donor, claiming to be donating his own money, but actually donating other people's money? Yeah, so let's talk about the complaint filed with the FEC by the Campaign Legal Center, which, as you say, accused his business of being a front for illegal straw donors and Mm -hmm. accused him of illegally using campaign funds for personal expenses like travel, luxury hotels, and expensive meals. That seems like it might be an easy thing to prove or disprove. Right. They went through his financial – the report. You are required to file reports with the FEC about your campaign, both your contributions and your expenditures. And they went through his expenditure list and found things that looked like they might have been paying for rent on a home. They're looking for kinds of meals that looked like they might have been personal meals rather than campaign meals because, you know, they were part of his travels. So it is illegal to use campaign money for what's called personal use. That would include things like paying for rent on your own personal residence or paying for – personal travel, personal meals not connected to the campaign. They contend that based on the reported information in his financial disclosure forms, it's likely that he was using some campaign funds for personal use. If that's true, that would be illegal. They said that dozens of his campaign expenditures were recorded as costing $199.99. Right. So a penny below the threshold. Uh, Under federal law, again, if your expenses are $200 or more, you're supposed to itemize what you were spending them on. Uh, anything under that, you can just put on to, in the uh, broader category without you know, providing any details. And I think they pointed out that something like more than half of his, of his expenditures, something in the round numbers around 40, either were $199 or $199.99, which they just seems is just wildly implausible. Uh, And then they actually looked at some of the expenses and then kind of compared them to when we went online to public information about what the vendor was charging. And it it seemed to be either more or less, but not that amount. So they looked at like what it costs to park at JFK Airport or using the the clear system for kind of expedited treatment, you know, and going through airport security. And they actually say clear charges 189, but they put down 199 there. I mean, again, they're basically saying that, you know, if you look at all of it, there's a huge number of 199.99, which seems to evidence an intent to basically to file a false report. So the Campaign Legal Center filed the complaint asking the FEC to investigate. Will the FEC investigate 
Any well, it's really up to them. They have to look at the complaint, see whether on its face it, it makes a you know, plausible allegation of both facts and a violation of the law. And then they have to make a decision whether they want to undertake a formal investigation. That requires a vote of the commission. Then they do the investigation. And then if they conclude that kind of the facts support the allegations that the campaign legal center is making, they can then bring a, a case against them. It's a civil case. They can impose fines and, and enjoin him from doing these things again. The FEC doesn't have a criminal enforcement power, but they could refer, if they think that there's a criminal matter there, they can refer to the Department of Justice. So they can bring a civil case. They can seek, actually, there can be some fairly hefty fines that they can seek, but it's, it's essentially civil penalties. And as far as the criminal case, you know, the Eastern District, let's say that the federal prosecutors find what the campaign legal center alleged in its complaint to the FEC, accusing his business of being a front for illegal straw donors, as you mentioned, and accusing him of illegally using campaign funds for personal expenses. What kind of charges could prosecutors bring? Well, again, I mean, just I'll just focus on the campaign finance ones. I don't know if there's any tax problems or anything with his LLC or anything involving the LLC itself. These campaign finance law violations would become criminal if they are what's called knowing and willful, if he knew and intentionally violated the law, if he was part of a scheme to take money from unknown donors and pretend that it was his, and it gets more serious if some of that money came from corporations, possible, we don't know. If some of that money came from foreigners, that's illegal. And maybe, you know, given his ties to Brazil or elsewhere, it's conceivable that some of the money came from foreign sources. That's illegal. And it's also quite conceivable that some of the donations were above the statutory limit. There's a limit of $2,900 per election that any one donor can give one candidate. It's quite possible. Again, this is all, we don't know any of this, but it's possible that some of those donations were well above the donation limit. So it's not just the apparent misreporting of, the, of his expenditures and being a straw donor, though that's pretty serious in itself and criminal cases have been based on that. But it's possible that the reason he's the straw donor is it's disguising all sorts of illegal contributions, as I say, by corporations, by foreigners, or by people who gave way too much money. So if this was all intentional, knowing and willful is the, is the legal language, that could be the basis of a serious criminal case. Two congressmen from New York are filing an official complaint asking the House Committee on Ethics to investigate him and whether he broke the law when he filed his required financial disclosures late and without key details about his finances. Is that separate from the Federal Election Commission? Exactly. That's a separate issue. The House of Representatives has rules requiring people to file financial disclosure forms, including, I think, uh, candidates. Because obviously his, his misreporting or his alleged misreporting was while he was a candidate. But the House also has these filing requirements. They obviously only have jurisdiction to, against somebody if the person is actually a member of the House, but he now is. So they, there is a House Ethics Committee, and they can look into these things, and they can recommend sanctions. I mean, their sanctions would be along the lines of a reprimand or a more serious. Well, really, I mean, they're largely you know, verbal, like reprimands. But in the most egregious cases, they could ultimately recommend expulsion. I mean, that's a pretty serious thing that very rarely happens. And it's unlikely that he would be expelled unless there actually is a federal criminal case brought against him and, and he's convicted. 
but that would be the ultimate thing. More more likely, they're going to do something like a, if they were to find a violation, would be some nature of a reprimand. But they don't even have to investigate if they don't want to, right? And the House. They don't have to, and of course, they can take their time. They're, uh, they're it's just being reconstituted uh, based on the actions of the House yesterday which imposed term limits on, on members of the Ethics Committee, which meant that at this moment, I think uh, all but one of the Democrats actually has to get off the committee. So I wouldn't expect very rapid action from the House Ethics Committee, but it's possible that they too will get involved in this. Well, House Majority Leader Steve Scalise told reporters yesterday that the Santos issue is being handled internally. We're going to have to sit down and talk to him about it. Well, that sounds more like, you know, go a visit with the principal or maybe, you know, a, a parent sitting down with a, a, a teenager who borrowed the car. But the House can vote to expel a member. It requires a two thirds vote. And it, ah. and it really only it is constitutionally possible that they would, they would need a two thirds vote. It really only happens in the most egregious cases. And it, it's hard to imagine it happening here unless he is actually convicted of a federal crime in some ways. The damage has been done. Um, the facts are, I mean, I mean, if, he's, if he violated campaign finance law, then, we're, then those are serious issues, and, and that needs to be resolved. But in terms of the lying to the public, lying to the voters, that's all out there now. Um, and, you know, if he runs again, certainly that's going to be part of his record. Any final thoughts about this and all the investigations going on? What helps to support the idea that, that he might have committed campaign finance violations that build the case that he might very well be a straw donor and that he may very well have filed false um, expenditure reports is all the other lies that he's already admitted to. You know, the fact that he kind of comes into this as uh, an acknowledged embellisher, an acknowledged liar about his resume, about his ancestry, about his education kind of um, at least provide some context for the, um, the claim that he also lied on his campaign finance report. Thanks so much, Rich. I always appreciate your analysis. That's elections law expert Richard Berfault, a professor at Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio.